0: Lord, we thank you so much for the great gift that your word is to us. You sent it to instruct us, to teach us, to give us wisdom on how to live well, that we might glorify you in this world that you have put before us. Lord, I pray and ask now that you'd be with me as I open your word to us. Would you bless the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth? And as John prayed before, would you be with us all? Would you help this to be a time of communal worship, of learning, teaching? And ultimately, giving glory and reverence to you, the God and King who deserves it all. Amen. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that human beings are story bound creatures. Our decisions, our expectations, and even our recollections are all shaped by or contained within the stories that we believe. Why, for example, depending on our culture, do we believe that we should go to school, go to uh, university? Get a job, get married, and have kids. Why do we believe that that's the order of a life well lived? Well, as I said, if you come from my culture, that's just the story you've been told. That's how you live life well. How do you get through difficult times? Well, it's by telling yourself the story that things are going to get easier sometime in the future. Maybe your difficult day of work is going to end with an evening of cricket on TV or maybe your difficult season is going to end with a time of blessing. That's the story you tell yourself to get yourself through. Even our Rugby World Cup win from late late last year is even sweeter because of the story of South Africa and the way that the Rugby World Cup intersects with that story. These are examples, even trivial examples, of the ways that stories impact our lives. But it's even truer in deeper settings Why do we believe some things are good and some things are evil? It's because we believe certain stories about how the world is and how things operate. Why do we believe in success and failure and what that looks like? It's because of the story that we told ourselves about how to succeed or how to fail. In so many ways, it's the stories we tell ourselves that define us. And this is why I find the book of Daniel so interesting. Because the book of Daniel comes at a moment of a crisis of confidence... For the people of israel previously they had a grand story in which to situate their lives they were the descendants of abraham a man whom god had chosen by name and promised to give blessings descendants and land in other words to turn him into a great nation they also had the story of the exodus the story of their god taking on the most powerful nation in the world at the time and defeating it all for the purpose of saving them from slavery and returning them to the promised land that they believed He had given them. That more than that, they had the story of the temple, this place where God had chosen to live in a unique way among His people, the very intersection of heaven and earth, where they could go and worship their God. That is what they believed about their station in life. And so even though the life of an average Israelite is hard, I mean, it's a farming city, a farming country, and they still had the ordinary struggles of of a human life. Despite that, they had this grand story in which to situate themselves, which made them able to get through the difficulties that life would throw at them. But by the time of Daniel, all of that had changed. Israel had given herself over to the sin of idolatry, and as a result, God had punished them. And he punished them by sending the people of Babylon to come in and conquer them, to take the people into exile and to destroy the temple. And so put yourself in an Israelite's shoes at that point. The land that you believed God had promised you is gone. The descendants of Abraham, taken away. The temple, the very place where God Himself decided to live, destroyed, leveled. How do you cope with that? What do you say to yourself? Has your God been defeated? Has he abandoned you? What's going on? The book of Daniel is an answer to those questions. And it does so by continuing the story. What the book of Daniel teaches or taught the Israelites of its time is that their moment in history was not the final stop for God's plan. It was rather an oasis on the way to a greater plan. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan... It was the Rivendell on their journey through to the ultimate conclusion of the story. And so the book of Daniel is, in other words, an opportunity for a reframing of the Israelite story. And I believe we can get a whole taste of the message of the book of Daniel in the second chapter. And so as we look at the Daniel chapter 2, we're going to see how the story reframes the Israelite narrative by firstly reminding them of who their God is, by revealing his plan... That they were a part of, and by realigning their attitudes for the present moment in which they found themselves. And after this, I will take this from the time of Israel to today and show how this is still relevant to us. So my first point for the morning is that in Daniel 2, we are reminded that uh, the Israelites who were hearing the story were reminded of who their God is. And this is particularly the case in the prayer that Daniel prays, in verses 20 to 23. So you'll want to have that open. But before we look at that prayer, we need to consider the context that led Daniel to pray, what he did. So the chapter starts, as we read, with Nebuchadnezzar having a dream that unsettles him. And so he summons all his magicians, his enchanters, his sorcerers, and his astrologers. So these were essentially his advisors, the people he trusted to interpret. Not only political goings-on, but more particularly, the will of the gods in line of those goings-on. And he tells them that they must interpret his dream. But not only must they interpret it, to prove that they have genuine revelation from God, they must first tell him what he dreamed, and then go on to interpret this dream. If they can do this, they will be rewarded. If they can't, they'll be severely punished. The sorcerers and enchanters and all that crew, they say, this is impossible. No king, no matter how great, has asked this of any enchanters, because only one person can do that. And that is God himself. And he does not dwell among men. This enrages Nebuchadnezzar, so he orders them to be executed, all en masse. Daniel, being one of these people, gets wind of what's happening. And so he goes to the king and he says, give me some time, I will interpret your dream. He has a prayer session with his three friends, and the dream is revealed to them in the midst of that prayer. And it's at this point that Daniel now prays the prayer that we see in verses 20 to 23. And this is not just a continuation of the story. No, this is an important part of the story of Daniel. It's a time where Daniel reminds the Israelites of who their God is. And so what does he say about their God? Well, we see in verse 20 that the most important truths are summarized when Daniel says, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are His. And so this right away tells us that this prayer will be meditating on God's power and His wisdom. So how powerful is God? Well, look at the beginning of verse 21. It says, He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. Now, importantly, this is some foreshadowing, so keep it in mind. But also, it illustrates the power of God Almighty. Think of nature, right? The coming and going of the seasons, as we experience in Hilton, the falling of the rain, the coming of the sun, the growing and uh, being harvested of crops. All of this seems so inexorable to us. It's just going to happen. We can't do anything to bring it about. We can't do anything to stop it. And yet what Daniel tells his readers at this, is that this comes because of the explicit will and allowance of God Almighty. We can't do anything about the, nat- the natural happenings, but God is the one who causes it. It's not random. It doesn't happen by some kind of outside force. It's only God and His will and His power that makes it happen. Consider further the most powerful human institution you can think of. Every example is controversial, so I'm not going to point to one. But just think of an extraordinarily powerful human institution. They have the power they have because God allows it. They came to power because God allowed it. And when their time is up, God will ensure that they pass away. In other words, what Daniel is saying is that the most mighty of human institutions, its reach, its power... Its ability to do what it wants is circumscribed by God. God controls the extent of its power, God controls the duration of its existence, and God is the one who brings it to a conclusion. In other words, this is shorthand of saying, a shorthand way of saying, that everything that happens either happens because of the express will and action of God or because God has allowed it. In other words, nothing that happens is outside of God's domain. That's how powerful the God of Israel is. But God isn't only powerful, he's wise too. Look at verse 21b to 22, just slightly further down this prayer. It says, he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. In other words, all knowledge there could ever be Anything that is true is known by God, whether humans know it or whether they don't, whether humans will ever learn it or whether they will never learn it. All knowledge belongs to God, and God governs his power in accordance with this great endless wisdom. And sometimes he gives his people that wisdom, like he does for Daniel with the dream. But the only reason God can give his people that wisdom is because he himself has it in the first place. And so, by the end of this prayer, we see that God is extraordinarily wise and extraordinarily powerful. The wisest being in existence and the most powerful being in existence. Now, put yourself in the shoes of an Israelite that would be reading Daniel, an exilic Jew. Not only have you just seen Israel fall to pieces, but you've been exiled. Where is God, you say? Daniel is saying, your God is still here. Your God is still powerful. Nothing that happened to you in Israel happened without his say so it was not out of his power to stop it 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 was not out of his wisdom to allow it to happen in other words everything that happened to the israelites happened because god allowed it because of his great plan and power how comforting would that be to be reminded that your god is still the one in control never for a second did he take his hand off the wheel And so that is our first point, that Daniel reminds the Israelites of who their God is. But having reminded them of the identity of their God, he goes on to reveal to them the plan of their God. And he does this in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which is found in verses 31 to 45. And so the dream that reveals God's plan goes like this. While he was sleeping, King Nebuchadnezzar saw a great statue, a great and dazzling statue. This statue had a head of gold, an upper torso of silver, a lower torso and upper legs of bronze, and then lower legs of iron with feet of iron mixed with clay. From nowhere, a stone, not cut by human hands, strikes the feet of this statue. The statue falls to pieces and is blown away. And the stone that struck the statue becomes a great mountain, taking up the whole world. It's obvious what that dream means, right? No. But luckily, just like Nebuchadnezzar, we have Daniel to interpret it for us. So from in verses 36 to 43, we learn that each of the different layers of the statue represents a different kingdom. And that these kingdoms are going to come successively. And so the head of gold is Nebuchadnezzar. That's what Daniel tells us. Um, And nowadays, some historians think that the silver is the Persians, the bronze is Alexander the Great's Empire, and then the iron is Rome. Others disagree and have different empires. I contend that the point isn't to show us which empires come after which. The point is to show us that there's going to be a succession of great human empires. But like we saw in verse 21, their coming and their going is under the control of God. We see God's power exercised in the fact that he allows empires to rise to a certain point and then he deposes them, only to be replaced by the next one. But that's not the only way we see God's, um, plan, uh, God's power exercised in this dream. Look at verse 44. Daniel tells us that the stone that struck the statue represents God's kingdom, and this kingdom becomes like a great mountain. Now, if you were to take the picture of a statue versus the picture of a mountain, there are some obvious and important differences. Right? A statue is made by people, a mountain is made by God. A statue is big, but it's nothing compared to a mountain. A statue without maintenance will fall to pieces and be destroyed. A mountain isn't going anywhere. Mountains last and last. And so by comparing these pictures, Daniel is showing the difference between the kingdom of men that exists now and the coming kingdom of God. And so once again, I'm going to ask you to put yourself in the shoes Of a Jew in exile. Reading this passage. Think of what it would have been like. Because remember they had God's kingdom. But they lost it. But now Daniel is telling them. That isn't the end of the story. There's a greater kingdom. And it's coming soon. I can't tell you exactly when. But it is coming soon. God is going to establish an everlasting. Powerful kingdom. For his people. And they are going to live there. Under his rule. And his justice. And it is going to be blessed. That is the plan that God has for the Israelites. How comforting must that have been for Jews who had just lost everything. To know that this wasn't the end of the story. God hadn't abandoned them. He had a plan for them. And it was coming in the form of a kingdom that was going to come soon. But what about the meantime for the Israelites? Because it's great to remember your God. It's important. It's important to know what that God is doing. But these Jews were still in exile. They still had a life to live. And so what what does this passage offer them for help? Well, it offers them the example of Daniel, who helps them to realign their attitudes, to help them to live better in their exilic life. And so the first example that Daniel gives them as a way to live is that Daniel is extremely humble before his God. We see this in verses 26 to 28, where Daniel is presented to the king by Ariok, the commander of the God, as the man who can solve the king's problem. And when the king says, ah, you can solve my problem, Daniel says, I'm not. Don't be fooled. He says, no wise man, enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. In other words, Daniel has a moment here where he can take the glory for himself, but he says, no, no, it's not me. It's God. God is the one who is able to do it. He has chosen to do it through me, but it is God and his action alone that is what allows this to happen, O King. The other way Daniel serves as a great example is his trust in God. We see this in verses 14 to 19. When Daniel hears about the king's edict to kill all the Jews or all the wise men, what does he do? He goes straight to Nebuchadnezzar and he says, I will interpret your dream. Remember, at this point, Daniel has had no reason to believe that God is going to act. He hasn't had any foreshadowing, any foresight as to what's going to come. Daniel just trusts that God cares for his people and he loves them. And he believes God will meet his need in that moment. And sure enough, he does. And so Daniel provides the Israelites with a great example of humility before God and trust. Which again is important. Because how easy would it be to grumble against God in the situation of an exilic Jew? You've lost everything. And yet Daniel reminds them to be humble before God. How easy would it be to fail to trust God after you perceive he's let you down? But Daniel reminds them that God has never lost sight of his people. Everything he does, all his great power, all his great wisdom, is exercised for his own glory and for the good of his people. And so by the end of reading Daniel chapter 2, the exilic Jews would have had a lot to remember, a lot to encourage them. They would have been reminded that their God is great in power and great in wisdom. That far from forgetting them, he actually had a great plan for them. And that in the meantime, they had to be humble before their God and to trust him. But at this stage, you could be forgiven for thinking, thanks, Dylan, but I'm actually not an exilic Jew. I don't know if you noticed. And the answer is, I did notice. But we still need the same process of recalibration. Our stories get out of line just as often as those stories of the Jews did. Life is hard, modern life is distracting. How can you focus on remembering your place in the story of God when your phone is going off every 45 seconds? How can you remember your place as a child of God when you actually don't know how things are going to meet at the end of this month? Well, the truth is the Bible gives us the opportunity to recalibrate our stories, just like it did for those Jews. But unlike those Jews, we have an even better option for recalibration. So just as often as we forget, or as the Jews forgot their God's identity, we forget. But while they had a recorded prayer, which was beautiful and helpful we have an even better revelation. In the book of John, he tells us that we have been reminded of who God is by the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. He has made him known. In other words, the Jews had a partial picture of who God is, and that was enough to encourage them. But in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we have the perfect final picture of who this God is. And what he is like. And so we have the best reminder possible of the identity of our God. Likewise, in Daniel 2, the Israelites were reminded of God's plan for them, the coming kingdom. Our side of history, we remember a man who walked from Nazareth, who went to the Jews, saying, Repent, the kingdom of God is here, believe in the good news. Our Lord Jesus Christ, in his coming to the earth, and his death on the cross, began the kingdom that we now live in. It's not here in full, but it is really here. There's a scene in uh, the Narnia book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where the white witch is trying to pursue the escaped children, and she's on her sleigh because she's turned all of Narnia into a hundred years long winter. But slowly and surely, her sleigh stops working because the snow is disappearing. And eventually her assistant, this dwarf called Ginebrick, says, This isn't just a thaw. This is spring. Aslan has come. And spring has begun. In our world, the same thing has happened. Jesus Christ has come. The winter of sin is gone. The spring of our new life in Christ is here. Not fully here, but really here. And so in the meantime, before it comes in full, what are we to do? Well, just like Daniel's readers, our calling is to be humble before God and to trust in him. But we have even more reason to do that. How can we not be humble before a God who took on human flesh and humbled himself to save us? How can we not be humble before a king who has defeated every enemy, including death, and has them subjugated at his feet? How can we not trust the king who rushed to save us, forsaking every glory and honor due to him? And how can we not trust the God who has scars on his hands that say, I love you, I never forgot you, and I never will. And so when you find yourself losing touch with the great story of God and your place in it, turn to Jesus. Let him show you the truth of that story. And let him remind you of who you are in that story. And just like the people to whom Daniel was writing... You will find yourself with renewed hope and strength to face the day. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your kingdom, Lord God, that has come. For the fact that it was promised so long ago. For the fact that it came in Jesus in a real way. And for the fact that it's going to be perfected one day soon. Oh Lord, we thank you so much that in the meantime we can know that you, our God, our King cares for us more than anybody else. All your great power, all your great wisdom is exercised for your glory, for your people. So Lord, please help us to live in line with that. Please help us to trust you and please help us to be humble before you. In your precious name we pray. Amen.